Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we begin Sefer Melachim, which is very exciting. By way of introduction, I'll just say that the Sefer covers an enormous amount of history over 400 years from the construction of the Beis HaMikdash all the way to its destruction, the first Beis HaMikdash. However, this is not a history book. The book is written with a particular religious and moral perspective, trying to give an accounting of the key events, the highs and the many lows of this time. The Gemara attributes the authorship of this Sefer to the Navi Yirmiyahu, to Jeremiah the prophet. And we'll do our best, as always, to read the Sefer literarily with an interest in the kind of 30,000 foot messages and ideas, key themes that are expressed in this work, the ideas that Yirmiyahu was generally trying to demonstrate by giving an accounting of this important period of our history. For transparency, and uh, in case you're interested in delving a little bit more deeply into some of these prakim, so uh, my guides and my chavrusas, as I uh, inform and study, uh, inform myself and study up on, the, on these prakim and prepare these podcasts for you. So the, the first line of defense is always the dot mikra, which is an outstanding resource, presents a tremendous amount of information and references, other places in Tanakh, great insights, wonderful first place to look. This particular volume is written by Yehuda Kiel, who is responsible for much of the Dot Maker project. And as always, it is excellent, brimming with wonderful insights. Secondly, I'm quite find, fond of Rabbi Alex Israel's two volumes on Malachim, published by Magid. I think that that's an excellent resource to supplement and you'll see a lot of the ideas that I'm expressing or toying with or in some in some cases you know pushing back on whatever the case may be uh, you'll find them there in that safer an excellent resource I cannot moving on to the next resource I can't vouch for all of the content on the English version of 929 on the web um, but there certainly are a lot of gems there you have to kind of know who you're reading and put things in the correct context but I like to look there and often we'll find a, a, a juicy nugget uh, that I will uh, grapple with and in some ways present to you in the course of these podcasts. And uh, in addition, of course, I look at, not in addition, uh, quite essentially, I look at the classical Mepharshim. You cannot beat the Mikros Kedolos. Uh, and if you're looking for a virtual version of the Mikros Kedolos, so you can find that on alhatorah.org, a website with many amazing resources, with maps, with essays, outlines, all sorts of really great, great resources. That is a website that I can wholeheartedly recommend and vouch for, alhatorah.org. It's, uh, .org. Uh, and uh, so I'll just point you in that direction as well. So that's kind of the a pretty good representation of the material I look at on a kind of daily basis. I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to hand that to you and, and just have that kind of transparency so that we're all kind of working with the same sources in front of us. Okay, now let's jump in. The first parak of Melachim is an amazing account of palace intrigue. And it includes some familiar names from Sefer Shmuel. We're told that David is very old and could not be warmed. So his servants conduct a national search for an exceedingly beautiful young woman to warm him, or perhaps to serve as some kind of aid. We'll talk a little bit about what, what the sochenet, that's the, that's the job description, a sochenet, we'll talk about what that is exactly. Uh, and they find a woman who fits the bill, and her name is Avishag Hashunamit. She is uh, indeed extremely beautiful, and she serves the king in the intended way. And we're told that David does not become intimate 
with Abishag. Now, let's pause here to consider two very important and very basic questions. Firstly, what exactly was the responsibility of the Sochanet of Abishag? What was expected of her? What was her, what was her job? And secondly, why is this the opening to the Sefer? We always do this. In the beginning of a Sefer, we want to know why, why does this set the stage? What, what, what about this is so critical? And I see here these two questions being fundamentally linked. And you'll, you'll see exactly what I mean in a moment. So one approach is to say that the expectations of the Sochanet, the expectations of Avishag, was to be intimate with the king. And the, when, when we talk about warming up the king, that's kind of a... Uh, a, a euphemism. That would explain why this woman needed to be quite so beautiful, that needed to conduct an, an, a national search for a very, very beautiful woman. Why would that be necessary? If this woman was just an aide to the king, if this was a kind of a platonic type of uh, situation, so why, why would she need to be exceedingly beautiful? I understand, okay, you, don't, you want someone who's you know, fairly presentable, but to be exceedingly beautiful, just to serve as a, a kind of a nurse to the king, that seems a bit much. So if we say that David was supposed to be, the expectation, I would say, was that David would be intimate with this aid, so the fact that he wasn't serves as an indication to us of just how old and frail David was in this moment. It situates the Sefer at the very, very end of David's life. And it helps us to understand why succession is the immediate matter of focus now. It kind of sets the stage for everything that takes place in the aftermath of this encounter. But at the same time, it seems to me like there should be more significance to such an odd story. It seems like there are more benign ways to arrive at the point that David is very old and that it's a, it's a time to focus on succession. And so perhaps you could say, uh, a different approach. Perhaps we could go a step further, and we could say that the Sochanet, that Avishag's role was truly a chaste type of role. Her, ro- her role was to be some kind of nurse for David. Why she needed to be quite so beautiful is not so clear, but being that she was so beautiful, so exceedingly beautiful, she perhaps served as a great temptation for David HaMelech. And, of course, her role was to be near to David, to be in private quarters with David, and we might have thought that this would be uh, an opportunity for David to once again have a, a, a misstep and to overstep boundaries and to have been intimate with Avishag, even though it was not appropriate and not the expectation. And yet, David does not. And when the text tells us that he knew her not, that he was not intimate with her, it's not telling us that David was so, it's not an indication that David was so old. But instead, this is a redemptive moment for David, who by withholding himself in this moment is kind of doing tshuva for what? For the sin with Bathsheba, when David was not able to restrain himself in a similar fashion. And if we then see this as a kind of tikkun, a correction for that moment, then it sets the stage in an even more powerful way for what comes next, because this perek is all about the ways in which Bathsheba then steps up and ensures that David honors uh, his vow to anoint Shlomo, Bacheva's son, as his successor. So when David uh, corrects his behavior vis-a-vis Bacheva, so that's then when Shlomo, Bacheva's son, can now rise to power. And, 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 and David can, in a certain respect, almost be blessed with uh, this very suitable 
air. So it's, it is this wonderful closing of, of a previous chapter and setting the stage for what comes next. And it's for that reason that I actually prefer this latter reading, but there's certainly different ways you could take this. Okay, let's continue. No matter how we read the first four psukim of the Perek, it's clear to us that David uh, is at the very end of his life, and it's clear to David's contemporaries that he's at the very end of his life. And so it's, it's time for, for the next in line to step forward. And who, who is the one who does so? It's David's son, Adoniah. He decides that he is going to make a play for the kingship. And he does so by riding on a chariot with 50 men running before him, a real show of power, a kind of royal posturing, something that we have seen before, of course. This is how Avshalom tries to uh, mount his bid for the kingship as well. Avshalom, who, of course, is, is now dead. Uh, the Navi then gives us a fascinating kind of psychological insight into Adonia, and he tells us, the, the Navi tells us, that David never criticized Adonia, that he was never, he wasn't used to hearing the word no, he was not used to being disappointed, and maybe David never told Adonia, maybe reading between the lines, aside from the fact that we, we learned that Adonia may have been someone who felt a certain amount of uh, entitlement and was maybe a little bit spoiled, but in addition, we could maybe deduce that David never told Adonia, by the way, you're not going to be king. And so Adonia thought he was going to be king. And in addition to that, he had a lot of uh, characteristics, qualities that recommend him for the position. He was exceedingly handsome, perhaps not quite as handsome as, as, as Avshalom, but we're certainly meant to make the connection to Avshalom, who of course was perhaps the most handsome uh, man in all of, uh, of Tanakh. He is also the next oldest after Avshalom. So we can understand why he might think reasonably that the, the throne was his to take, and he felt that this was the right moment. And indeed, he wasn't alone. No, a no less significant person than Yoav, David's most important general, also threw his support behind Adonia. In addition to that, Eviatar HaKohen also follows Adonia. So there is real important, uh, very senior support in the camp of Adonia, who would appear to many to be a very reasonable candidate and successor to David. But there is also a camp of holdouts, which include Tzadok HaKohen, Benayahu Ben Yehoyada, and Natan Hanavi, including others. And the Perek, uh, though it tells us that these people are holdouts, it doesn't yet reveal uh, why they don't support Adonia, or who might be the other heir that they are supportive of. That's, that's left out. But the picture then moves into greater focus when we are told that Adonia holds this kind of party, it's a kind of rally uh, for his supporters, and he's, he's getting ready to, to... It's a kind of informal um, anointing ceremony. And we are told that, not surprisingly, Natan Hanavi, Ben Ayahu, Ben Yehoyada, that these individuals are not invited, right? Because they're, they're, they've already stake, they, they stake their claim... Uh, in a, in they've, they've put their flag in a different camp already. And in addition to them, the parak then tells us, the kind of a big reveal, who else is not invited? Shlomo, Adonia's brother, another son to David. And now it makes it quite clear that Shlomo was the other option, that he was the real threat to Adonia's bid for the kingship. But again, as the reader, we don't, we don't have a totally full picture 
just yet. We don't know why it is that Shlomo has the best claim to the throne. And that's part of what makes this parak so fascinating and so gripping. It's not just because it tells a very exciting story, as I said, of palace intrigue, but it tells a very carefully spun story, revealing kind of layer after layer. So here we, we have that layering. Now we learn why these men don't support Adonia, why Shlomo is excluded from this banquet. We're told that Natan HaNavi approaches Batsheva, and he tells her that she must act now and intervene because Adonia is declaring himself king, which would spell death for her and Shlomo. Why would it spell death for her and Shlomo? Because David, and here's the key, had promised the kingship to Shlomo, her son. So Natan, who we know to be this very strategic uh, thinker in terms of the way he expresses very important monumental ideas to David, the way he uh, approaches David and tries to move David to action, as he demonstrated with the mashal of the man and the sheep in the context of the Bacheva story, now he tells Bacheva uh, that he, she should go to the king and she should broach the topic of Adonia kind of seizing power and broach the idea that, uh, that David had promised the kingship to Shlomo, at which point Natan HaNavi, this very, in this very well-choreographed moment, is going to storm into the room, and he's going to, again, take up that same charge and say, who appointed Adonia to be king? And basically, with the two of them, with this kind of one-two punch, will jolt David and, and will pull him, awaken him from this daze and, uh, and hopefully push him into a moment of clarity to try and, and make a move to appoint Shlomo in a very clear and uh, indisputable fashion. And that's exactly what happens. David hears this and he suddenly says, okay, I have to, I have to make a move. And he has, he has Shlomo ride on his mule. He has Shlomo ride on his mule down to the Gihon Spring to be anointed, and then he has him return to sit on David's throne with a whole procession with lots of fanfare, excitement, pomp, and circumstance. That's exactly what happens. All this takes place. And then, so Shlomo has now been very publicly, very clearly, in no, not, in no uncertain terms, appointed, anointed as the next king and the Malimakom for David. All of this takes place. The word gets back to Adonia, who's still sitting at his party, his own kind of rogue anointment uh, moment, anointing moment. And, uh, and all the people that are there, they, they get message of what's going on, and they recognize that they're all now kind of liable to be killed for what amounts to, to a, a kind of rebellion. Everyone runs back to their homes. Everyone disbands. Adonia's party is ruined, and Adonia himself goes. He grabs the corners of the Mizbeach, which amounts to a kind of refuge, a base, safe, because uh, killing is anathema to the altar. It's anathema to the worship of Hashem. And that's where Adonia goes to seek refuge from what he assumes will be the immediate retribution from Shlomo for this uh, attempt at, uh, at seizing the throne, which it's now clear, kind of everyone knew, belonged rightfully to Shlomo. And then, after all of this narrative and all of this weaving and winding and intrigue, finally we get our first substantive look at the new king. Who is this person, this Shlomo we've heard so much about? With all of the mounting excitement, with all of this build-up to this mysterious Shlomo, with all that we know about the union between his parents and the incalculable implications uh, of that union, now, finally, Shlomo speaks. Now, finally, this Shlomo acts. And he tells Adonia, right, what's he going to do? 
how is he going to behave towards Adonia? Is he going to be punitive? Is he going to be kind? And he tells Adonia, I am not going to harm you. If you behave, if you demonstrate loyalty, a hair will not be harmed from your head. And at the same time, if I find you acting in bad faith, then I will kill you. And so the parak ends, Shlomo sends Adonia home. This is Shlomo. Now we know who he is. Wise, kind, methodical. He's not a man riding in the, in the Porsche, right? That's the, the, the chariot with the 50 men in front. He doesn't need that. He rides a mule. He's not the brother jockeying for power, trying to seize power to make a play for the kingship. He's the one who is ready when called upon to ascend the throne. And he is not the one who's ready to kill his adversaries once he takes the power, once he takes the throne. He's the one who is ready to forgive. And in that way, even though this parak seems like it's about David, and in a certain respect, it seems like it belongs at the end of Sefer Shmuel, and it would be a strange pick to start off Sefer Malachim. In truth, really the whole parak builds to this one moment, to this crescendo, when finally, finally, we meet Shlomo. The parak is essentially about Shlomo. That's it for today. Chazak ve'amatz, and happy learning.